Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest. March 23rd, 2023, the will be arrested on Tuesday of next week edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C., joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York. Hello, John. Hello. Good morning, David and Emily. I probably shouldn't timestamp when I say good morning, but it's morning where we are. So there you go. This week on the GabFest, will former President Trump be criminally charged over his hush money payoff to Stormy Daniels? What about over his absconding with top secret documents? We'll discuss, should he be criminally charged also? Then what's happening in France and can I retire at 62? We will talk to the Paris-based journalist Rachel Donadio about the plight of Emmanuel Macron and the plight of elderly French people too, which seems like not much of a plight. It seems really good to be an elderly French person. Then people cannot stop talking about ChatGPT and other large language model AIs. How will they change us? John and Emily will explain it to me. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Tuesday came and went. Donald Trump was not arrested or indicted or criminally charged despite his posting that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday. But many signs suggest that Trump will be criminally charged in New York State, one of the four or possibly five, I'm having a hard time counting, uh, criminal investigations he's facing for various deplorable acts, both public and private. On Wednesday came even more Trump criminal legal drama with the appeals court, the federal appeals court in D.C., ordering a Trump lawyer, Evan Corcoran, to turn over his notes from conversations with Trump about the missing documents or the the the, the secreted uh, classified documents in Mar-a-Lago with the court saying that the crime fraud exemption, which Emily is so excited to explain, that the crime fraud exemption overrode any claim of Corcoran's attorney-client privilege. So, Emily, let's start with the New York one first. Who is likely to charge him in New York and for what? Uh, Alvin Bragg, who is the district attorney for New York in Manhattan, has indicated that he seems to be moving toward an indictment in the hush money um, affair involving Stormy Daniels. So this is the um, issue in which Michael Cohen, who was Trump's lawyer and fixer, pleaded guilty to very to to fraud, basically, and lying and trying to influence the election in arranging this payoff. Um, and Trump is the principal in the story, and he had not been federally charged. And indeed, the federal prosecutors decided not to pursue charges against him. Alvin Bragg seems to be looking at violations of New York law, starting with falsifying business records. And so this is a, this idea that the payoff to Stormy Daniels was 
supposed to be for legal services, that that was sort of the the claim that was made, and that when Trump then repaid Cohen, who was the person who actually paid Daniels, um, the prosecutors would have to prove that Trump knew that he was falsifying business records. That's a misdemeanor in New York. In order to make it a felony, the charges have to get linked to another crime. And that seems kind of complicated. I mean, the obvious idea is that Trump was in some way trying to influence the election himself. Why else bother to pay off Stormy Daniels right before the election? And then you could have some kind of violation of campaign finance law. But the statutes are kind of murky, and it doesn't seem like prosecutors in New York have done this before. And so that's the sort of question mark about the um, indictment itself, what shape it will take and how it will hold up in court. Emily, you said that Bragg had... um suggested he might indict. What gave you the indication that he thought he might indict? Well, they invited Trump to come testify before the grand jury. But that's not Bragg actually doing it. It's just us interpreting that if if you've been if you're a target and you get asked to testify, that's usually a precursor to actually being indicted. But he didn't actually say anything. The reason the only reason I'm asking for that distinction is the press has gone absolutely bonkers in covering this. And much of it is because Trump is yanking their chain, which is a repeat of all of the chain yanking he did for the last six years. And it seems like he's basically done it again. He yanks the press's chain. Now he added to that by saying he was going to get arrested. But then he gets everybody whipped up, gets all this coverage, and then he raises money off of the coverage, um, which then, you know, is either if you see it one way, it's a part of his grift, or it's just a part of his just ever churning self uh, aggrandizement scheme, which may be part of the same thing. And that's why it sort of interests me how we all got to this place when and what the initiating thing was. And I guess it was the assumption that inviting Trump was a precursor to indicting him. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Basically, in New York, it's customary, and this isn't true everywhere, that if you're going to indict someone, you first ask them if they want to testify before the grand jury. And then, of course, nobody does because that would be really not in your interest to do as the defendant to try have to answer questions before the charges have proceeded and you're actually on trial. But right, I mean, Bragg could still decide not to. And there is skepticism about this particular set of charges. Um, you know, what I keep thinking about is that the investigations of Trump involving the classified and secret documents at Mar-a-Lago, which we should talk more about, and then the, you know, January 6th insurrection, and then the idea of whether he was trying to force the election to swing to him in Georgia with his call to Brad Raffensperger, all those different investigations are meatier and weightier than the hush money payoffs to Stormy Daniels. Doesn't mean that he didn't commit a misdemeanor or possibly a felony in the hush money scenario as well. But there's something odd about the idea that the hush money payoffs are going to be, it has the kind of feeling of like, you know, charging Al Capone for tax evasion. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen at all or that it'll be the only thing, but the laser focus on it at the moment is kind of strange. Just reminding, the major focus is all Trump's doing. I mean, this is why he is um, an evil genius in a lot of ways. Take the weakest thing against you, claim that's what um, is being, uh, you know, you're being railroaded for. Do it before you have any actual charges, despite the fact that lots of lawyers are going on TV talking about the charges and what the indictment is, even though there is no indictment. And get that allows every Republican to then defend Trump, not on the merits of the thing, because there are no charges. We can't we can't respond to an indictment that hasn't taken place. Nevertheless, they spent all this time talking about how Bragg's indictment, which hasn't happened yet, is a total political act, which gives them a safe place to be outraged. 
And this is all constructed by Donald Trump. And the people who spent the last six years being led around by him are being led around by him again. It's extraordinary. Well, if you're right about that, I think Bragg's office is kind of playing into this. And then there's this related same play going on, John, in Georgia, where there is no indictment. There isn't even a criminal grand jury. There's a report from a civil grand jury. And Trump's lawyers are trying to quash that. And having, like, serious best defense is an offense play there, which is sort of also puzzling, except that then you have this problem where the grand jurors started talking to the press, which like really is not helpful for whatever in- investigation that district attorney might be doing. So it's sort of there's a lot of messiness. Let's turn to the other case. I mean, we can we can stay on the New York one, but the, the crime fraud exemption situation is fascinating here in, in D.C., a judge in D.C. has ordered Evan Corcoran, a judge, incidentally, I should note, who is my cousin, Beryl Howell, is my cousin. She's a, a federal judge here in D.C. Uh, I've never talked to her about this case. She has ordered Evan Corcoran, who's a Trump lawyer, to turn over what, Emily? Oh, she has ordered him, it looks like, to turn over his notes and maybe audio tapes he made of talking to Donald Trump. And this is super unusual, right? So we have this rule called attorney-client privilege. The idea is that you go and talk to your lawyer, you're allowed to be as honest as possible because you're not, your lawyer's never going to have to divulge what you said. Like, even after you die. And this is, like, really supposed to be, in almost all circumstances, this ironclad protection. And the idea is that people need to be able, honest with their lawyers and able to get the best legal advice. And that's part of how our adversarial system operates. However, there is an exception, the crime-fraud exception. And what it says is that if there is evidence that you were talking to the lawyer in the course of planning a crime or committing a crime, then a judge can pierce, it's called, attorney-client privilege, and make that lawyer talk about what you said. That is so unusual. It really doesn't happen very much. And the idea that there is evidence of an underlying crime here, nobody has said exactly what it is or even that necessarily Donald Trump committed it himself. But it is really rare and a very big deal for Evan Corcoran to have to turn over his notes, his recollections of these conversations and any audio tapes he have has of talking to Trump about these documents at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, I this is like serious popcorn time. He's not just a person you told, I'm going to go shoot Joe, and you tell your lawyer. It's, help me pull the trigger to shoot Joe, is the distinction I'm trying to make. The second thing is, the fact that they mention audio recordings, A, that there are audio recordings is amazing. B, doesn't that mean that he has, that Trump's lawyer has essentially at least told DOJ something about what he has? I mean, in other words... Is audio recording something you always just put on the form or is it something that they would probably know he has? I guess that's one of the great questions. It suggests that they think he has it. I mean, I can't say that for sure, but it suggests that. And yeah, it suggests they know enough about these conversations that they think that there is a reason to break this almost ironclad rule with someone extremely prominent and famous, right? I mean, you don't go around doing this in any normal case. And to do it in this particular case is really quite something. And so the status of it, Emily, is that Judge Howell told Corcoran he had to do it. They Trump and Cor- Corcoran was preparing this materials to hand it over. The Trump folks appealed. 
the D.C. Circuit, the appeals, federal appeals court in D.C. did it extremely expedited, super fast, amazingly fast, one day review of this and had everybody brief it and reviewed it and said, no, you got to go ahead. So Corcoran now has to go ahead. But I gather that the Trump folks do still have the right to appeal this to the Supreme Court and that if they if ultimately the 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 prosecution loses on appeal, they will not be able to use any of this material. In fact, will have taken their investigation down a down a dead end and won't even be able to use anything that they learned from it. Right. Right. I mean, they can appeal to the Supreme Court. It's pretty unusual for the United States Supreme Court to interfere in this kind of back and forth between the trial court and the appellate court, but it could happen. And yeah, I mean, if um, the uh, Justice Department ends up barred from piercing attorney-client privilege, then they wouldn't be able to use the materials. Another thing to throw in the soup here is whether the Department of Justice has made the case or thinks or anybody thinks and. The idea would be the reason everybody's moving so damn fast is that there's maybe the possibility that Trump might still have classified documents. In other words, one of the reasons you would want to hurry up and go is if you thought there was an ongoing national security um, threat. Now, this is total speculation. um, And put me back in the box, Emily, if there are other reasons to go quickly. But isn't one of the mysteries why everybody's being asked to march forward so quickly? Yeah, I mean, that was crazy. As I understand it, one set of lawyers had until 6 a.m. to respond to an order that they got the previous evening, which is like, (laughs) what? Uh, Sure. I mean, it's also possible that the courts just got fed up with how much stonewalling and stalling there has been particularly on the side of Trump's lawyers, but it is expedited to the point of kind of like craziness. I mean, there are just so many unusual things about this case. It's just, I really am fascinated by it. Listeners, I wish you could see the smile on Emily's face. Emily's, not that she's taking pleasure in in anyone's criminal misbehavior, but just the, the legal Rube Goldbergness of this is giving Emily so much pleasure. You know what this is, David? This is a brokered convention. Yes, it's, yeah. what, it's for lawyers. It's the lawyer version of a brokered convention. Exactly. I mean, I also should explain, I co-taught sort of a class on professional responsibility last semester with um, Doug Nijame, a friend of mine who is an amazing professional responsibility expert. I was there as like the journalist. We were comparing the rules and laws that govern lawyers to the rules and fewer laws that govern journalists. And Doug was really teaching the class. And so I learned a lot. I learned all kinds of things that I barely learned or never learned in law school. And one of the things we talked a lot about was the crime fraud exception. So that's part of why I'm so excited about John, can we just just wrap this a little bit on the politics of it? So as far as Trump as a presidential candidate goes, what's your take on how all these criminal investigations affect his campaign, affect coverage of him? affect the race. I mean, as you've already said, it's it he has it has made him the center of attention again. We've fallen, we've we've chased the rabbit down the track again. So wh- where do you think it it plays out in terms of the election as it starts to heat up? Yeah, and uh, again, the distinction I would make is uh, it's the the crime fraud exemption uh, exemption that Emily talked about, the actions of the appeals court, the actions of the special counsel that are all happening, actually happening, not rumors about things happening, but actually happening. That's news and that's worth covering and that's interesting. What's happening in New York with the DA is speculation about a thing that hasn't happened and that's being whipped up and man- stage managed by the candidate. And to me, though, that's a crucial distinction in the way to pay attention to Donald Trump. 
there's a rallying around him. It's absolutely um, whipping up the fervor of those who think that Trump, as their representative, um, you know, is chased after and penalized. And he's running his next campaign as kind of grievance squared. I mean, it's a, it's the first one was built on grievance. This one is built even more so on grievance. Um but, you know, four or five serious legal proceedings um, might be more than Donald Trump can even uh, overcome. And also, once some of this stuff comes out, particularly on the classified documents, um, if if there is crime here um, and what he's got is is serious, then a lot of the lawmakers in Washington who are rushing into this very useful political space right now where they can claim Bragg is a political uh, operator, but not have to wrestle with the the specifics of the case. I think in the documents case, they would have to wrestle with the specifics of the case. Um, January 6th has additional complications that are hard to get around, um, harder to get around and have less to do with Trump, but have to do with other values that lawmakers profess to have. Um, and that would be difficult to hold those two in, in the same time. So I think that does create um, some complexity. But, you know, you can't beat you can't beat something with nothing. And, um, you know, Ron DeSantis is bouncing around, but he sort of stepped in it on Ukraine and he's taken on Donald Trump, who is very good at political fighting. And the ways in which um, DeSantis has taken on Trump so far have not been that clever or creative. Um, so if just one small dumb thing. This is dumb and dumb and dumb, but politics is sometimes super dumb. Um, DeSantis went, had a conversation with Pierce Morgan and said, oh, you know, the nickname he calls me Ron Sanctimonious. I don't even know how to spell that word. He went to Harvard and Yale. Donald Trump could easily come forward and say, huh, he doesn't know how to spell sanctimonious. That's funny because he went to Harvard and Yale. You'd think somebody who went to Harvard and Yale knows how to spell sanctimonious and would repeat the word sanctimonious 75 times, right? And in this, in so doing, say essentially Ron DeSantis is a phony telling you something he doesn't know that he, of course he knows. And then he would say, you know, and what does sanctimonious means? It means taking the high moral uh, position um, sort of performatively, which, of course, is what DeSantis is doing, saying, well, I don't know what this word means, but I'm just focused on governing. It's just if you're going to fight Donald again, this is all stupid, but stupid is running the show right now. And if you're going to if you're going to fight Donald Trump, that is that it seems to me is not a signal that you're going to beat him up uh, decisively. Slate Plus members can get a bonus segment by becoming a Slate Plus member by going to slate.com slash Plus. And today, our, we have a great Slate Plus to talk about, very apropos. It's why has Iowa, sweet, tolerant, civil Iowa, become such a deep red state? How did that happen? We will talk about that. And you can get that. If you were a Slate Plus member, you can also get no ads on any Slate podcast, bonus segments on lots of Slate podcasts, and even bonus episodes on some Slate podcasts by going to slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely 
loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Emmanuel Macron's government survived two no-confidence votes, but nationwide protests continue against his wildly unpopular plan to force through a hike in the retirement age, the French retirement age from 62 to 64. Americans live 16 years after our retirements on average, and we can thus only marvel at the French who live 25 years in retirement and enjoy the hell out of it. We are joined by the brilliant Paris-based journalist Rachel Donatio to talk about what's happening in France and to talk about the French retirement. So, Rachel, first of all, what do you get when you retire in France at 62? Does everyone get it? What kind of life does it allow you to leave? Sure. Well, first of all, I think that we should... I know there is tremendous American envy of France and this idea that people just live better in France. And I think that we need to establish some basic facts here, which is that Emmanuel Macron's proposed or now pushed through pension reform means that you will now have to, you can retire at 64 instead of 62 after having worked for 43 years minimum. And when you do retire, you the average is usually people get about 75% of their earnings pre-retirement. And France actually has a pretty high level of retirement income compared to your salary before you retired. That being said, in France, you don't have a lot of private pensions like 401ks that we have in the United States. So standards of living for retirees tend to be pretty high because the their retirement take home isn't that much tremendously lower than their previous salary. But the cost of living has been increasing and life expectancy has also been increasing. And so all of these things combine to create part of the mess that we're in now. Emmanuel Macron um, is pushing through the increase in um, the retirement age. So I guess just, Rachel, walk us through what's happening 
and and the nature of that debate? And is it really actually a debate about something else? You know, the way in which couples, when they argue, sometimes the thing they're arguing about is actually not it. It's really like a, a slight from a month before. Is there any way in which this is really a proxy war that's better understood as a fight over X? And what is X? Yes, X is many things. It is the fight that it's why didn't you unload the dishwasher that is really about what is the nature of this country and the social welfare system and the economy and life on earth as we know it. A lot of things are going on here. The issue isn't really so much the raising of the retirement age by two years, although that is definitely a factor. The issue is really how Macron did this. This was supposed to be a key piece of his legislation, and he crammed it through with an executive order which is basically a massive political failing of the most basic kind. You don't go to a vote if you don't have the numbers. And this has become, like so many things in the Macron presidency, essentially a referendum on Macron. And people, many, many people, do not like this guy. And these giant demonstrations, the words that are most often heard are mépris, contempt. They feel that he has contempt for the French people, that the government has contempt. They're not listening to what the people want. And also malentendu, a misunderstanding. We didn't understand what the pension reform is really about. They didn't sell it well. And so that is also what's going on. You have to remember that the office of the presidency of France, Macron's office, his, the role of president, has a tremendous amount of executive power, but he actually doesn't have a huge amount of political clout in ways at the moment because he has a minority government. He won re-election last April with a solid majority. But after that, there were legislative elections. And so he didn't do very well in those. And the far right and the far left gained more seats. So he is governing with a minority of seats in the 577 member National Assembly. That means that he's governing in some ways, not in coalition, but in kind of concert with a center-right party called Les Républicains. Those guys campaigned in 2019 wanting to raise the retirement age to 65. And yet, many of them in the vote didn't show up to back the pension reform. Why? Because they're in disarray, because politics, because they don't want to look bad, because it's not a popular thing. So I think Emmanuel Macron is in many ways one of the smartest and one of the dumbest politicians on the world stage today. He is smart in the sense that he has a remarkable, brilliant command of policy. He has Obama-level command of policy. He can debate anybody in the world on issues and debate them under the table until their eyes bleed. That being said, he lacks some of the most basic political instincts that city council members anywhere on earth would have. Building alliances, building coalitions, making sure people are on board, listening to people. And so that has always been a fundamental challenge of this presidency. That is such a helpful um, analysis and set of facts that you're giving us. And I just want to go back to a point you made about how Macron is doing this all by himself. So he's doing that because of a law that was passed when Charles de Gaulle um, became the leader of the country that allows, as I understand it, um, a law to become law without a vote of parliament. And then the only remedy parliament has if the leadership pushes this through is the no confidence vote um, that Macron nearly lost. I mean, just structurally, that 
is like completely in tandem with not listening. I mean, it's basically, I don't have a majority of votes. I haven't convinced the legislature or the elected branch of government to support my plan, and but I'm going to do it anyway. And it just seems like part of the root of the trouble here. And it helps me understand why young people would be against this, right? For sort of procedural as well as substantive reasons, which otherwise is puzzling because, you know, they're the ones economically who stand to benefit from this kind of change, right? I think young people understand that they're going to have to work long, a lot of years. I think that's not really the issue. But in choosing the, the, this constitutional measure, it's an executive order. It's like you push it through by executive order. And so you only resort to that if you really want to do this, but without the majority. He thought he had the numbers. His prime minister, Elizabeth Bourne, had to go out and rally the troops and try to build consensus. Um, the job of the prime minister of France is essentially to take the heat for all of the problems and to be hung out to dry when seen as no longer effective. It's also confusing. People don't quite understand, like, wait, why do we need this? It was something he wanted to do before the pandemic. And there were a lot of protests then. And then the pandemic hit. I have to say that France handled the pandemic extremely well. The fact that he used this executive order also feeds into another distressing development in France and across the West, which shares political weather patterns, which is this sense that democracy is not working. And the people feel like their elected officials are not listening. And so a lot of people think now that abstention will be higher. We don't believe in the system anymore. Probably higher French abstention would be even lower than average U.S. voter turnouts. Nevertheless, in Europe, which emerged from the Second World War and values democratic institutions and democracy and the republic very much, there is this sense that if your elected officials aren't, you know, you don't believe in them anymore, like something is really quite broken. And that, of course, fuels the far right, which Marine Le Pen in last year's election got 42% of the vote. That is huge. I traveled around the French countryside before the second round of elections, and I did a piece for the New York Times opinion session, set for the New York Times opinion section, the headline was Marine Le Pen has already won. And I stand by that headline because she has grassroots support and she's seen as listening and she wants to keep the retirement age lower. So it's really about so many different things, but using an executive order to pass what's supposed to be a piece of hallmark legislation feeds this sense that democracy isn't working. Now, Macron gave a television interview yesterday. He said, guys, this was debated ad nauseum in the National Assembly. Modifications were made to the law. It's the democratic process. This is how it works. And he isn't entirely wrong. But the fact that somehow he is seen as this arrogant, imperious, mansplainy leader, Jupiter from on high, he cannot seem to shake that. And everything he says contributes to that. He, he, I don't think he's on the wrong side of history, but he is not managing to sell this to the people. Rachel, I'm reminded of um, George Bush's gambit, which failed to um, move Social Security into private accounts after he won 2004, which... He said, you know, in an election, you win capital and then now I'm going to go spend some. It was a it was a, a noble gambit, even if you didn't believe in the underlying policy, because it suggested you take risks for the future that aren't going to really help you in the moment. Um, nobody does that anymore, in part because of his failure. 
it, what's Mac? Why is Macron doing this? Is it based on the same kind of thing? Because what's the what's the upside of doing making this change? I mean, I know the way he thinks the math works um, as a matter of the pension system, but like, why is he really doing it? That's a good question. I mean, I think he's really doing it because of the math. He's the guy who's like, I'm looking at the numbers. Life expectancy in France is 82 and a half. France spends 14.5% of its GDP on pensions. That's compared to 7.5% in the United States. People are living longer. And it makes sense. It's it has to be something incremental. And But, you know, as you know, in politics, it's hard to sell. It's just hard to sell that. Anyone who touches Social Security is not going to be very popular. But that's also, in fact, in fact, his arrogance, he is not afraid of being disliked. And that is actually in some ways an asset because he said in a television interview, I am not afraid of being unpopular. I am not going to be reelected. He cannot run for office again. He can just do this. And I think all countries in Europe do the, need to do the math. Economists are not entirely convinced by this reform. It's a huge political cost for something that's ultimately fairly incremental, which again speaks to the political failure here. But economists also think there should be something that's a little bit more progressive or graduated, or if you're a white collar worker and you're earning more, maybe you should work longer and that will put more into the system as opposed to if you're, you know, doing a manual labor and your body is going to give out, you can, you can retire younger after, again, after those 43 years of contributions that was raised from 41 and a half under the socialist president Hollande with the support of some unions. So it is not impossible to do this. It just speaks to the, the challenges that, that Macron has, has had. I mean, all those nuances you're bringing up there seem really important. And it strikes me, I don't know if tragedy is the right word, but so you have this technocrat who's trying to do something that he sees as important for the long-term economic well-being of the country. It doesn't sound like he's doing it perfectly or even that well um, policy-wise, but he's trying. And then he's completely blowing the politics of it, which maybe is fine because, like you said, he doesn't have to run for re-election, except that there's Marine Le Pen waiting in the wings and this problem of, you know, right-wing ascendancy when people feel like something's being taken from them. I mean, that seems like the huge risk of this misstep here. When Macron ran for office and won in 2017, he's kind of a fluke, a kind of an anomaly of history. He ran by running, doing an end run around the existing center-right and center-left parties. The Socialist Party, which he belonged to, he was the finance minister in Hollande's socialist government. He left the party understanding that the ship is sinking. The party has fewer votes than ever before in its history. And also the center-right Republican Party, that candidate, Francois Fillon, he was supposed to win, but there was a fairly low-level corruption scandal, and he was not a viable candidate. So Macron emerges. He absorbs all the votes from the center-right and the center-left. It's his movement. But that being said, he hasn't. He doesn't have roots. He doesn't really have a base. His base are readers of the Financial Times and people who are looking at the numbers. And you know that. That being said, okay, he won the vote with a majority. But it's not like he can tap into a network of mayors across France and say, "Guys, bang the drum for me." He does not have that kind of grassroots support. And Marine Le Pen is the oldest polit not in age. She has been around longer than the leaders of any other party in France right now, almost. And so she is, I don't necessarily think people will 
believe that she can run the country. That being said, she absorbs a lot of the support in rural areas and among people who feel like, as we said, things used to be better. And she's the vote for we want things to be what they used to be. It's weird. He's the radical. And then the resistance to that is, what do we want? Status quo. The real challenge to Macron is that in absorbing the center right and the center left, there's no, there's nothing else out there. There really isn't. He's kind of just absorbed everything. And the people associated with him are going to be tainted by this unpopular reform, and that'll make it hard for them. And so it's really unclear what comes afterwards. Rachel Donatio is a journalist in Paris. Rachel, thank you so much. This was incredibly enlightening across a wide swath of France. Thanks so much for having me. We talked about ChatGPT once a few months ago, but it has now completely colonized the minds of almost everyone in tech and everywhere else as well. I feel like it makes the mania about crypto or the metaverse seem really trivial by comparison. Um, the hyperbolic claims for for generative AI are astonishing that it's going to change everything. But I have to confess that after reading a bunch of articles about it and playing around a little bit with ChatGPT, I do not get it. It doesn't feel like magic to me, but I'm sure I am wrong. And now I'm going to ask John and Emily to explain what they are engaged by and why this is so important. So you guys go ahead and I'll, I'll poke in occasionally with interesting questions, but why are you, why are you, what, what is it that is, that is, that has colonized your brains about this? Well, I'm reluctant to have my brains colonized. I mean, uh, in my family, where people are way ahead of me on this, I said a couple weeks ago, can you just wake me up when this is over? And they all said, are you kidding, mom? Like, this isn't going to be over. Good luck with that. So I think what's happening is that these um, large language models, as they're called, are rapidly getting better. And it's not that right now they're so amazing and can do my job or take over the world, but they look like they're heading in that direction. And so I guess to me, there are a few things that are interesting. One is how helpful they could be. Like, could they really support our lives in ways that really improve human existence by just kind of taking out some of the friction of dealing with systems and errands and all the things that drive us crazy? Could they be just be like the best personal assistant in the world? That's one lovely scenario. Another interesting question is, with GPT-4 or whatever comes next, can you figure out how to write questions and prompts for it that really improves your own working life if you're a knowledge worker? Like, could my writing and reporting be significantly better because it's helping me along the way? Different kind of help than the, like, logistics help. And then the third question is, like, whether they're going to leap beyond human control, take over the world, and lead to human extinction. Or if not that, like some dramatically, radically different kind of universe and um, human existence than we currently have. And I don't think that's like absolutely around the corner, but it seems like there's a small but significant chance that that really could happen. And I don't exactly see why it's not going to happen. So that I find pretty fascinating. John, what about you? I think I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that um, David is right to be skeptical about, you know, the great new 
things happening in um, in public conversation and the fads go away. And certainly Y2K was one of the first times we were introduced to something that was super hyped in the technology area and then didn't come to pass. Of course, some people would say the reason it didn't come to pass is because there was so much attention on the Y2K problem and that that was avoided because of all the attention was worthy. But I think this is something slightly different than crypto. I mean, this is, um, first of all, when you have Bill Gates, who has a pretty good track record on seeing big movements and naming them um, and understanding the undulations of, of technology, when he says this is you know as big or bigger than the internet itself and goes back to Microsoft to basically work on the product selection teams for what Microsoft is going to do with AI, that suggests more than just Matt Damon supporting crypto. Anyway, so I think that's just one way to kind of put the hype in in a box. I think Emily's point is is right also, which is that artificial intelligence here is moving at a super rapid clip and getting better. And it's and it's doing things like passing bar exams and medical exams and that that's a little bit of a novelty thing. But it also represents the horsepower behind this and the learning capacity behind this from a personal and, and that's getting faster and better. And so um as a way of kind of bastardizing Moore's law, which um, predicted the exponential growth of computing power, there's a pace and an iterative power to ChatGPT that I think is ama- is amazing. Finally, um, personally, I think Emily is a thousand percent right, which is that the prompt process is actually I find incredibly engaging and wonderful and fertile and allows you to do thinking with a with ChatGPT. That is super useful for what we do, and I think for what other knowledge workers do. I think also people who seek advice and want a kind of, um, I mean, I'm at a deeply personal level about issues that the ability of chat GPT now to get it, it had the ability to get it wrong is incredibly dangerous, but the ability to um, act as a kind of um, beginning for some human development, I think is, is really possibly amazing that your claims your your sort of extrapolations about it still feel sort of non-specific to me in a way that i i'm i don't i sort of lack the imagination to imagine how is it that in fact it's going to take care of all my errands i mean i do have to i still actually have to go to the you know the 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 the, the shirt has to get to the dry cleaner like well some to, things are like that but all yeah. the things you do on the internet right like you're planning a vacation, it could rent cars for you, it could find the place to stay. Maybe that's not that different from something a person could do on TaskRabbit. Here's but the what, here's what, David, imagine it could over the last year look at your email correspondence and the way you've allotted your time without you having to tell it how you've allotted your time and come up with a conclusion about how you spend your time and how you spend your time most usefully and productively based on the way you've written about it or talked about it. And you would know it's it's basically any of the metrics. If you ever study your health or anything like that, when you look back at the metrics, it can be incredibly powerful. I guess I feel like I know there are lots of parts of life where which are metrical and analytical, but that fundamentally, light we're not optimizing in life for productivity or efficiency. That we are optimizing for love and touch and community, and that that any thing that imagines a future where those are not the fundamental things that people want people want human interactions with other humans they want it in physical spaces with other humans they want it with people they feel love for because of deep 
biological, physical connections. And those are like that. That's the centrality of human existence to me. And so like anything, any, anything that, that, that is a technology that is going to affect me has to speak to those things above all. And I don't understand, and I haven't been, I don't understand how this speaks to those things. What's one of the great things about friendship is you have people who know you, who remind you of who you are when you get off track. And what if this, the ability to analyze your day and the way you've been working recognizes that that's one of your values and returns you to one of your values from when you get off track for whatever way or another? Uh, that it happens, or that it contacts one of your friends and says, you know, David really values personal relationship and he could really use a phone call right now. Um, that So in other words, it becomes, it it is aimed towards exactly the value system you just articulated. And it takes off well, your shoulders maybe. a lot of the annoying friction-filled parts of the day that take you away from love and community and human experience. That's the benevolent version of it. That, yeah, no, I guess, although I, I guess I'm suspicious of anybody who says that this this thing, which is fundamentally yet another tool of of typing and and engagement with a screen or with a microphone in your head, is is its basic purpose is to increase my interaction with human beings. I mean, that's a good set of skepticism to have. Like, yeah. we don't know the I mean, answer to that yet. I mean, there are. It's not as if there are no technological tools that help you with your human values, right? Like, it's not like you would give back the internet or give back the telephone or plus there's no j just because it's technology doesn't mean you can't use it or aim it towards all the other kinds of human flourishing and things that you're interested in what are the great what are the five great walks in wherever you're going and why are they great or if you could give me five of the best walks in america with the following criteria, they have to they have to pass a bookstore, they have to have pass a coffee shop that sells, you know, oat milk latte, and they have to have a Airbnb within three quarters of a mile from that thing. You could design your favorite walking path in America by all the criteria you have. I would like someone to put that in chat, that specific thing in ChatGPT, by the way. It also sometimes lies and makes stuff up. Like, especially if you ask it for the best list, it seems to do that in this weird way, like make up books that don't exist. Um, I mean, we have to talk for a second about how unregulated this is, right? If Bill Gates is anything like correct, and this is this huge change that is barreling toward us, we, in regulatory terms, seem, be, seem to be completely unprepared for it. And I mean, I'm just going to be alarmist for a second. What if this is like when they were building the atomic bomb? or biological weapons, or something else super dangerous, and we don't have any kind of regulatory framework for controlling the speed at which it's being developed, right? I mean, there's a survey going on of people who work in labs developing AI, and the median answer they gave for how likely it is that this could, like, drive humans, I don't know, out of life entirely was 10%. Like, that's not zero. And I don't <laughs> see the world, like, preparing for it. And it does seem certainly possible that these models are going to jump the guardrails that they currently have. Because once they're out there proliferating and there's any kind of open source access to them, all it would take would be, like, one person maybe even accidentally harnessing them to do something which is in their self-interest but could totally wreak havoc. And I just, the the gap between the potential danger and power here and the regulatory and sort of 
um, control, the lack of preparation just seems like potentially staggering. And I mean, obviously, I hope I'm totally wrong and this turns into Y2K and it's some nothing burger. But like, it, it just seems really possible that it could go very awry. Can I just say I asked ChatGPT, what is the best walk in Washington, D.C. that passes by a bookstore, a coffee shop, and a record store? Start at Politics and Prose. This independent bookstore has a great selection of books as well as a cafe where you can grab a coffee and pastry. Next, head south on Connecticut Avenue and take a left on Calvert. After a few blocks, you will see Kramer Books and Afterwards. That is not true. That's false. That's not true. The geography is wrong. Kramer Books isn't on Calvert Street. Yeah, it's true. It's not on... It's not on Calvert, it's on Connecticut. (laughs) False. We've only proved that David is right, John. Oh, well, forget it. I mean, I assume the addresses are right. But uh, anyway, so that's obviously a thimble full of what in about a year it will be able to do. Presumably in a year, it'll tell you what's at all of those places. Or, you know, if you if it it could measure it against your um, your sucrose intake and suggest exactly what kind of coffee you should get and how much sugar in it. Right. I mean, right now it's like a really smart, I mean, sometimes it's like a really smart ninth grader. Sometimes it's like a really smart person who prepped for the LSAT, right? It's a particular kind of intelligence that's not that threatening, but it's rapidly improving. Like GBD4 is really much better than the previous models. That's what gets me. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Everyone's stunt is ask a large language model to do something for you. We didn't ask a large language model to create a cocktail chatter for us. Instead, we did something better, which is that Bridget Dunlap, who's been our researcher at the Gapfest for four years, I think, four plus years. This is her last week. Bridget's been amazing. She's been an incredible colleague. As a human, she's always like sort of cheerful and engaging and lively. She's an been a phenomenal researcher too. So much of what makes the show work is the work that Bridget has put into it and like that has allowed us to to learn things. And she's just delightful. Uh, and so as a as a farewell, uh, Bridget's gonna do our first cocktail chatter. I'm chattering about a 15-minute podcast called Under the Dome, which is put out every week during the legislative session here in Missouri by an organization called Empower Missouri that works on poverty and criminal justice issues. I'm fairly new to Missouri, and the podcast has been an easy way to learn about the legislature and what's going on with policy issues that I care about, but the newspapers may not have the bandwidth to cover regularly. Uh, So (laughs) what they do is they go rapid fire through what happened with the bills they testified about that week or news of what they're supporting or opposing. So it will it will be like this is what happened on extending postpartum Medicaid. This is what happened on SNAP benefits. There's a bill to eliminate sales tax on guns, and a legislator tried to amend it to also end sales tax on diapers. I just feel like there's so much in the news here that can make you feel angry and defeatist. So it's great to learn from people who just keep doing the work in a really rough climate and finding possibilities for bipartisan solutions where they exist and training regular people to be advocates. 
So under under the dome is Missouri specific, but worth a listen to one episode for the insight into state policymaking. And organizations in other states have versions of this or do Zoom legislative previews before the session starts. And I just find it really helpful to think about how I can go from being an angry spectator to getting involved in moving things in a better direction. I love that. I got to find that in Connecticut. Or David has to come create it through CityCast. Bridget, thank you so much. We're going to miss you so much. Yeah, all you. all you GabFest listeners, you haven't heard her, but you've heard her and everything that we've um, done over the last many years and um, all, all of the upside and none of the downside. And man, the number of mistakes she's captured and caught and kept us from making. Um, uh, when you think about the number of mistakes we make, yeah. imagine that doubling. Um <laughs> There will never be a chat GPT to replace Bridget. And the level of care and thought and sensitivity that you have brought. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. I've learned so much from you guys. Emily, what's your chatter? I have two recommendations. One is for a new book called Madame Restel by Jennifer Wright, which is... A story of um, a 19th century woman who became an abortion provider in New York and super notorious and bold and also kind of tormented. And I've gotten interested in her for my own research purposes. So I'm excited that now there's this whole book. She actually did a r- lot of writing herself, Madame Rastel. Um, and this just looks terrific. I just started reading it, um, but I recommend it. it. Just looks like a good, vivid history read. And I also wanted to recommend a new podcast from The Atlantic called Holy Week that is about the week of MLK's assassination. And our beloved former producer, Jocelyn Frank, worked hard on it. It has Van Newkirk hosting it, who is um, a wonderful journalist generally and um, someone whose podcasts previously I've just loved. So I recommend that a lot um, in anticipation. Holy Week from The Atlantic. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is... um about this lovely little app that I discovered. This is such a kind of me chatter that it's almost like a parody. But anyway, it's this wonderful app called Imprint. And um, basically, one of the things that I'm constantly struggling against is is how not to spend the snacking time in life um, where you're like waiting in line or you're in the cab or you're doing something and basically not spend it on social media. Anyway, Imprint has this lovely... Um, short version of amazing different um, parts of human knowledge. Um, Everything from the natural world to economics to leadership to relationships to philosophy, beautiful little illustrations, all in snackable bite-sized pieces that are not, and this is of course always the key, totally weightless. I mean, some of them are quite um, powerful and and you can think about them in for a very long time and in fact adapt them into your own life um, and so it's been incredibly great so whenever I get um, the urge to do something other than be alone with my thoughts while I'm in a cab in traffic I um, check out imprint and um, I'm much better for it my chatter uh, this week the citycast team gathered in D- or some of us were met in in DC and uh, we went out for a drink on Monday night to write proper this wonderful uh, 
brewery in Brookland in Northeast DC. And uh, we've been talking about doing some stuff with them and it's, it's a great place. Their beer is awesome. And we were met, we went there, we were met by a cat and I met this cat. And uh, then I was talking to Thor, who's the owner of right proper. And he was talking about his, their cat. And there's this amazing program I just learned about in DC called blue collar cats. And maybe this is outside of DC too. It's run by the Humane Rescue Alliance. And what they realize, there are a lot of feral outdoor cats in D.C. And that's not great to have a lot of breeding feral outdoor cats. It's bad for the bird population. Cats themselves, you know, there are too many of them after time. So they, the Humane Rescue Alliance takes them off the streets, spays and neuters them, and vaccinates them. But these are basically outdoor cats, which are not suitable for adoption. And so what the Humane Rescue Alliance has done is it puts them to work. So invites you, if you have a business or a home or some structure uh, where you have a problem with rodents and you have outdoor space, you can have this cat. Your your responsibility is to feed and water the cat. You don't have to give it um, internal shelter. It doesn't want to live internally. It wants to live outdoors, but you have to provide it with food and water. Um, but the cat's job is just to be there and get rid of rodents. And this like Thor was just saying, you know, at the beginning when when this cat showed up, they had it caught a couple of rats and and, you know, like there, it was bloody. But now there are no rats because rats and mice will just not live where there are cats patrolling. And it's so great. And these cats, the cat is there. It's been put to work. It's having a nice life and the business benefits. It seems like such a fantastic virtuous cycle. So blue collar cats from the Humane Rescue Alliance here in D.C. I recommend it. Listeners, you sent us an incredible selection of chat. This was the best week of listener chatters ever. There were about five listener chatters. Each one was sort of more personal and more intense than the, than the one before it. And it was very hard for us to choose. But we did have a chatter that we're going to choose. We had to choose a chatter. And it was such a pleasure. And this week, it comes from Alexandra Phelps. Hi, Gapfest. I am an OBGYN training in high-risk obstetrics in Tennessee, where I my patients, and my colleagues are forced to reckon with the fallout from Dobbs and the state's complete ban on abortion every single day. I wanted to call your attention to a piece by Kavitha Sarana in ProPublica entitled, Doctors Warned Her Pregnancy Could Kill Her, Then Tennessee Outlawed Abortion. The piece is a powerful profile of a brave woman, Miss Hollis, who had a cesarean scar ectopic pregnancy which threatened her life at a time when she could not access the abortion care that would save her and her future fertility. It is also a moving account of the courageous OBGYNs who fought to give her the care she needed and deserved, but were ultimately unable to provide due to legislative interference in medicine. It is a poignant reminder of the real human toll these harmful bans take on patients, families, and the people who are supposed to be taking care of us. As a physician, I think the author did a great job painting a compelling and realistic portrait of what pregnancy care in a post-Roe red state looks and feels like, frequently painful and fraught. Stories like these are worth telling and understanding as states across the country consider legislation to help or hinder abortion access in this new era. Thank you for listening. I hope you check it out. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth, a researcher today and no more. Bridget Dunlap. 
Bridget Godspeed. Our new researcher who is here is Julie Hugan. We'll learn more about Julie in the future, but we're so excited to have Julie on board too. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio. Slate, please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. You can tweet chatter to us there or email it to us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and departing Bridget Dunlap, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? There was a fascinating article in the Washington Post by Annie Gowan. It's called Iowa's Sharp Right Turn from Centrist State to Florida of the North. And it's about how how Iowa has gone from being a state which voted twice for Barack Obama, which has a long and very distinguished history of of prominent Democratic politicians, Tom Harkin most recently, um, and famously tolerant. It was the third state to legalize gay marriage. It was a civil rights bastion. And it has become a very red state in a very short time. Uh, there are no more Democrats representing the state in Congress. It has a Republicans are, I think, have all of the statewide offices except one. Um, and it's just gotten very conservative. It's They're passing a lot of laws, uh, sort of laws targeting trans people, big school choice, school voucher bill just uh, is been pushed through. And John, I know you have a deep, deep relationship to Iowa. You've been there a ton. I wondered what you thought of this this piece by Annie Gowan. It, I don't know. I mean, yes, it's, fa- you know, no, I guess on the one hand, my first thought is, um, you know, Iowa is the state where Pat Robertson did well, um, uh, where he, when he ran for president and didn't do well anywhere else. Um, Ted Cruz beat Donald Trump. Um, it has always had, Mike Huckabee was, was strong there. It was, it's always had its Republican caucus voters have always had a, um, there's been a strong um, kind of evangelical part of the Republican Party. So on the one hand, it's always had this thread of the rightist part of the right and tinged with um, some part of the religious uh, part of the Republican coalition. What's what's up in the air, though, is two things, I think. One is there's a, there is a change among rural voters, um, most pronounced, really, when you go look at Iowa as it voted for Barack Obama, gave it, him about 51%. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.